Turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. And we are going to be teaching on verse 3 through verse 10, but let's pick up with verse 1 so that we got context. <clears throat> let's read. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. I also took Titus with me, and I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. <clears throat> Excuse me. Excuse me. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being of Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor and the very, th the very thing which I was eager also to do. Let's pray for our spiritual meal. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God that's filled with the spiritual nutrients we need. We're going to receive it by faith, be nourished by it. Father, we ask by the Holy Spirit you to anoint the eyes, ears, and heart of each person that's listening. Open them by the gift of your grace and cause them to see, hear, and understand what's being said. Father, I thank you that you cause your children to walk away hearing from you and getting what they need. And only you can do this miracle. I believe it's happening right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go back to verse 3, start unpacking this. It says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. In this section of Scripture, we find out that Paul had originally gone to Jerusalem after he was three years in Arabia with the Lord. He just wanted to meet Peter, and so he tried to step into the ministry, introduce himself to church leadership too early, and got into trouble. He created so much havoc, uh, they were wanting to kill him, the people he was preaching to. Uh, so the disciples got, him, got Paul, put him on a ship, and sent him back home. And then the church was blessed, and it had peace, it said, when he left. And so he was there some 10 years in silence. We don't read about him, but a few years later... A revival takes place in a city called Antioch, north of Jerusalem, and it's a city of Gentiles. And the Gentiles are getting saved in this church. And so they, the disciples at Jerusalem send Barnabas up to check on it. So Barnabas goes up, and he's checking on it. He loves the grace of God. And so matter of fact, he not only checks in and comes back, he never comes back to Jerusalem. He just says, you know what, I love it so much here, I'm going to help them grow. He becomes the pastor of the church. But he knows he needs somebody that can teach the Bible to disciple them. So he, he remembers Saul of Tarsus. And so he goes back to Tarsus, finds him, brings him back. And there Barnabas and Saul together are ministering to those in Antioch. And there's such a revival going on that the word comes back to Jerusalem that the Gentiles are getting saved. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. And they're not circumcised. Back in the day, if you wanted to become a follower of God, you had to become a Jew, and you had to become a proselyte. And so if you were a Gentile, you could become circumcised. Then you come under and take the, the yoke of the law upon yourself and become a proselyte of the Jewish religion, and you could do it that way. But these were Greeks. These were Gentiles getting saved. They weren't circumcised. They were spirit, filled with the Spirit, and God obviously was in them, moving among them, and so word got back to Jerusalem, well, what do we do with Gentiles? Are they different than Jews? And so there was a delegation from Antioch sent to Jerusalem saying, hey, we need to find out, finalize, what, what do we need to do as Gentiles? We want to do the right thing. And so Paul and Barnabas go, and Paul brings Titus with him. Notice it says, Titus, who is with me, say with me. Titus wasn't just somebody that got saved because Titus got saved under Paul's ministry. In the book of Titus, 
he mentions that Titus was a son after the son in the faith. And so he gets saved under Paul's ministry. And so he brings Titus, not only is Titus just someone that got saved, but Titus is now on his ministry team. He says, he's with me. And so he brings him with him. And Titus is a Gentile, uncircumcised, but filled with the spirit, tongue talker. And obviously God is in his life. And so, so God, bring, I mean, Paul brings Titus as fruit of his ministry. You know, you can't argue with fruit. You can argue pieces of doctrine, but you can't argue some fruit. And so this is fruit of the ministry, and Titus is a godly man. And so he's the fruit of the ministry. Being a Greek, that means he was a full Gentile. And so he and said he was not compelled to be circumcised. What does that mean? There were some trying to compel Titus in Antioch to be, to be circumcised, to be saved. And, and Paul says, no, Titus, Titus was a strong guy. Who's Titus? Titus was a convert of Paul, but he was a very strong believer. Now, Timothy, I mean, Timothy was also a convert, but he was very weak in his emotional makeup. He was also given to fear. Matter of fact, whenever Paul would send him to a city, he would send a letter saying, make sure Paul's with you and don't, don't uh, scare him. Be nice to him. And so he never had to say that about Titus. Titus was a very strong character. Matter of fact, Titus was his troubleshooter. Whenever Paul had a tough group of people that needed to be helped, Titus was sent. He was sent to Corinth to straighten the situation in Corinth out. He was also sent to the island of Crete. The book of Titus is about the island of Crete. Crete means flesh. And so Paul says that I left you in Crete. Matter of fact, the Greek says, no, I forsook you and deserted you on the island of Crete. He says, you know what? This island is filled with people that were wild. If you read Titus, it reads about that they settled things with their fists. And they had fist fights, and that's in the church. The deacons are brawling out in the front. In the, in the, so they were the rednecks of the day. And he says, I just left you on this island of flesh. Get this, if you could do anything with this island. And so Titus had a three-point message. It was sit down, shut up, and listen. And he just straightened it out. In a few months, he's back. He, he finds Paul. He says, I'm back. He says, what, did they kick you off the island? He says, no, it's all straightened out. And so he was able to do that. He was strong. And so he was strong. He, he was not compelled to be circumcised. And so he was a strong individual. So what is this about circumcision that was so important back in the day? Circumcision was a sign of the Jewish covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. And so it was a sign of the covenant, a covenant person of God. And so uh, circumcision under the Old Testament was done in the flesh. It involved only males. It was done with a natural knife. In the New Testament, there's a, there's a New Testament circumcision, but what is the difference between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament circumcision? Well, in the New Testament circumcision, it takes place in the spirit. It's for males and females, and it's done by the sword of the spirit. Not a natural knife, a spiritual knife of the, the sword of the spirit. Look in Romans 2.29. Let's look at this, this inward circumcision we all received when we got born again. And so this is Romans 2.29. Raise your hand if you're a Jew. There's a few in here. Well, you're going to find out every, if you're born again, you should have your hand raised. Because I want you to look at Romans 2. Look at verse 29. <laughs> Romans 2.29 says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. Not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. When you got born again, you had a spiritual circumcision that the flesh was cut away from your spirit. Your spirit was born again. It was sealed from any contaminants. And so you had, a, you had this circumcision of heart. And so that made you a spiritual Jew. Guess what? Jesus is called the king of the Jews. Well, he's your king. And so tell someone, uh, your father's loaded. Tell someone else, your brother is the king of the Jews. And tell someone else, I'm a Jew. Tell me, you're blessed. You may not know it, but you're blessed. In the early church, the hot topic was circumcision. Today, in many churches, it's baptism. 
Many churches say that if you're not baptized in a certain way, you're not saved. And so both circumcision and baptism are similar in that they serve as an outward token of an inward reality. Circumcision was given to Abraham as an outward sign or token of his righteousness he received as a Gentile. You know, the the first Gentile getting saved is Abraham. Look at Genesis 15, look at verse 6. Genesis 15, 6. This is Abraham, the day he got saved. He got saved by faith the same way we get saved today. Genesis 15, 6 says, And Abraham believed in the Lord. Say, believed in the Lord. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. He he was not born again that day. Jesus had not come, not raised from the dead. It was put on his account. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was that. So when he got saved, guess what? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised? He was uncircumcised. He was a Gentile. The first Gentile that we see as a father of our faith. But I want you to see in Genesis 17, that's when the, the circumcision is given by the Father, and it's an outward token of the righteousness that people, it's on the outside of something that actually took place on the inside many years earlier. What's baptism? Baptism is an outward sign of what took place when you got saved. What do you do when you baptize someone? The word baptize is the, comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to fully immerse, dip or immerse into something. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. And so it represents death of the old man. And when you, when you die, what do we do with a dead body? We bury it. Do we sprinkle some dust on their head? No, you bury them fully underground. But, then you re- but in the resurrection one day, you're going to be raised up one day. But, but actually spiritually, you got raised up with Christ and you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. So water baptism is just an outward sign of what took place when you got saved. The old man died. You were raised with a new man on the inside. And so, again, that is baptism. Look at verse 4. And this occurred because of false brethren. Say false brethren. What are these? These, are, these are people that are not actually saved. They, they're, they're in the midst of other Christians, but they're not saved. This occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage. They were false brethren. Do you know today there's false brethren? You know, in in churches today, there are people sitting in the pews. They'll say amen, hallelujah, jump up. They know the Christian slang, but they're not born again. Do you know, to be born again, I've heard the term born again Christian. Actually, that's saying the same thing twice. There's no other kind of Christian but born again. You become a Christian not because you're born a Christian. You are born again to be a Christian. And so no one is born naturally a Christian. And so we're born a sinner that needs salvation. And when we realize we know that we've sinned, we know that there's a need for salvation, we believe Jesus, put our faith in Jesus, and when we do that, we're born again, and we become a Christian. And so no, a lot of people think, just because I came from a Christian home, I'm a Christian. Or I attend church, I'm a Christian. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so just because you're sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian, just like sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car. (laughs) And so you must be born again. And so this occurred because of false brethren secretly, say secretly, brought in, who came in by stealth to spy our liberty. Where was this? Where did this take place? In Antioch. In Antioch. And so there are some in the church of Antioch that were legalistic. And in every church, there are people that are legalistic. They don't like the grace of God. There were some in this revival that did not like it, that still wanted to hold to the law of Moses, wanted to be legalistic, and hated the movement of God and said, you know what, if those people down in Jerusalem knew what was happening here, they'd straighten this and stop it. And so they actually sent word back to Jerusalem saying, you need to send some people up here because you need to see what's going on. And so it says that they were brought in. They were brought in. So either one person or a group of people in the church didn't like what was going and actually caught, secretly brought them in. And so they came in to view what was going on. It says they came by stealth. Say stealth. Yeah. To spy out our liberty. Look at that word stealth. It means to come in by the side door. The false believers slipped in by the side door. You know Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. 
Every other, the robber comes in in another way. The thief comes in another way. And so they slipped in the side door. They don't ever come through Jesus, which is salvation, the door. They always come through their own works, their own way to salvation. But they came in, they got slipped in, and to spy out. Say spy out. This Greek word spy out means to look down upon. To investigate, to find a fault. The, the, uh, these legalistic Judaizers have descendants today. They're, the descendants of these guys are alive today. And they'll come into the church and they want to pick it apart. They want to look down on other people. They're not as spiritual as you, as they are. And they'll, and they'll look and they try to find fault wherever they go. You ever met someone that no matter how good something is, they always gravitate towards the negative? Yep. You walk into a place, instead of looking at all the positive things, you always gravitate and focus on what's negative. Tell someone, don't be that person. You make everybody miserable, and you make yourself miserable. Don't do that. Look for the good. And so these legalistic Judaizers came in to find fault and look down at what was going on in Antioch. They came to spy out who was, and so they came to spy. What were they spying? They were spying out who was circumcised or not. Now, that's a very private matter. So to be able to do this, they were going slipping into the bathroom. They were becoming peeping Toms in the name of religion. They were being perverts in the name of religion. What else were they doing? This liberty enjoyed by Antioch was not just that uncircumcised Gentiles could worship freely in the church. They also enjoyed eating non-kosher foods like pork, like bacon. And so they wanted to come in and see what you're eating, what's on the menu. We're going to find out next week, this is previews of coming attractions, is that Barnabas got up to Antioch and had such a great time, he never came back. And they said, okay, well, he never came back. So Peter, will you go up and find out what's going on? Peter goes up and he loves it too. He's enjoying the charismatic worship and everything else. And he love it. he's loving breakfast. He loves his, he's having eggs and bacon. He's having ham sandwiches for lunch. He's having pork chops in the evening. And next week we're going to find out. He looked out one day. He has, he's eating his pork chop, and he looked out the window and saw those from Jerusalem coming and spit out his food, sprayed his breath, cleaned off the, the pork juice off of his beard, and separated from the Gentiles. And that's coming attractions for next week. And so they came that they may bring us into bondage. The Jews were slaves under the law. The law always will bring you into slavery to your own performance that you never can be good enough and you'll become a slave. Grace and faith will bring you into the glorious freedom of sonship. Amen. Ladies, I know it's difficult for you to understand that you're a son of God because it's not a sex, it's a position. Amen. And so, again, you're, we're in a place of sonship. And so we can actually rest in Christ. Do you know that Jesus came and on the cross he said, I'm still working on it. I'm sorry. He said, it is finished. And when he rose from the dead to prove it, he sat down. You know, in the Old Testament priesthood, they could never sit. Out of all of the furniture found in the tabernacle, there was no chair. Because the priest could never rest. It was constantly working under the law. But Jesus sat down and rested. And when we get saved, we're raised with him to be seated with him in heavenly places. I want you to go, I can rest in Jesus' perfection and stop trying to offer a, a horrible version of it to God. Because mine will always stink. But I can rest in Jesus' perfect performance. And it's called a finished work. It's over. It's perfect. You can rest in it. Living under Mosaic law brings you into bondage and slavery. Now, I think that this is a good place to talk about a balance. Because in the book of Romans 14 and 15, we find out that Paul talks about don't use your liberty to be used in front of brothers that are weak, that don't feel like they can do it, and force your freedom on them. You cause them to sin. So don't, don't, don't do that. But here in Galatians, it's the opposite. You have unbelievers trying to force their views and opinions on Christians. 
and making them bow and be put into slavery based on them being forced. Do you see the difference? Is we're not supposed to use our freedom to bring peer pressure on other people. It's like if back in the day that some Christians understood they could have bacon for breakfast. And they would go over to their friend's house and they would, you know, or invite people over and they would bake bacon. And then they would say, oh, wouldn't you like some bacon? No, I, no the Lord says don't eat bacon in Leviticus. He says, you don't know, but the Lord fulfilled all that. Now you can have bacon and wave your bacon in front of their nose and say, come on, if you really trusted Jesus, you can have bacon. And then you, force, then you wound their conscience because of peer pressure. Don't do that. But the whole other thing is to have other people force and pressure you into adopting something that brings you into bondage. And it's happening today, today, to Christians today, is there's a whole segment out there that wants to bring you in and forcing you to accept homosexuality, accepting woke culture, transgenderism, all this other stuff, and they're forcing you, and if you don't believe what they believe, then they call you a hate monger. And it's happening more and more, or racist or whatever, and they're forcing their way upon you to believe, and there's going to come a day where you're not going to be able to sit on the fence, there's no more gray, it's black or white. Am I going to go with what the Word says, or will I let people force me into it because one day you're going to be, you may be brought before a court and says, What do you believe about it? And you just to get out of it, many Christians, I believe, or so so Christians, will say, No, I believe it's all fine, it's acceptable, just to get out of, out of, out of persecution. There may be a day where we may find ourselves in jail, but there will be a jail ministry. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. We're not to pressure other believers with our legitimate liberties, but don't let people pressure you into adopting theirs when you know it's not the word of God. Look at verse 5. To whom we did not yield submission for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Say say yield. You know, yielding is the starting place of being enslaved. It says, I didn't yield. And notice that yielding will lead to submission. Look, at it says we didn't yield submission. Say yield submission. Yielding will lead to submission every single time. Our submission to God starts with our yielding, but it's true with the enemy as well. Look at, at the Romans 6.13 in the King James. Romans 6.13 in the King James. It says, neither yield, say yield, ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield, say yield, yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. How do you submit to God? It starts with yielding. Yielding. And so again, have you ever had a yield sign out in traffic? What does that mean? Speed up and beat them? (laughs) Yield submission. The enemy wants to enslave us and it starts by yielding to him. We're to not to give any place to the devil. Look at Ephesians 4, look at verse 27. Ephesians 4, 27. It says, give some place to the devil. I'm sorry. Neither give place to the devil. Look at the word place. It's the Greek word topos. We get the word topography. Don't give any topography. Don't give any geographical ground. Don't give any ground to the devil to take. And you know where that ground starts in our mind. Where he comes in and he's able to take a piece of our mind and we start thinking about what he's saying, his lies that he's saying, and the temptations that he's saying, and, 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 and we start entertaining, we yield to him in our thinking. And before long, we will actually yield to him in action. Yielding to the pressure of legalism is dangerous. You know, you can yield to temptation for sinful things, but you know you can yield to legalism? What's legalism? Legalism is doing anything in order to get God to respond to you and bless you and move in your life based on what you've done. And it's tempting to offer God a little bit of your legalism called leaven. You ever leaven? It take a whole lot of leaven to leaven an entire lump or a loaf of bread. And so a little bit of leaven is, is when you say, yeah, Jesus, I need you. You died on the cross for me. I need what you did. But to heal me, I also have what I've offered. And I've, I've been a good Christian. 
I've tithed, so you owe me healing. No, I, I've, been, I've gone to church every time this month I've been there. It's good that you go to church, but not in order to get God to bless you. And so if we add anything to Jesus' finished work, we mess it up. I don't care if it's 1% to his 99%. It's either 100% what Jesus did or 100% what you do. Notice it says we didn't yield submission even for an hour. Remember, the enemy is very subtle. The ploy of the enemy is to get you to yield just a little bit. He'll, he'll, he, wants, he wants you to say, okay, I'll, I'll just do it a little bit, and then I'll stop. He wants you to say, okay, I will just a little while, uh, and then I won't, I won't do it anymore. Or, you know what, I'll, I'll entertain it in my thought, but I won't do it. And then you keep entertaining and entertaining and say, okay, well, and then, then the devil gives you the grace message. Your sins are forgiven. You're righteous. So go ahead and do it this time. And next time you'll stand in grace and in the power of God and you won't sin next time. It's a lie. Little while. Little bit. Just this time. You give the enemy an inch, he'll take a mile. You crack the front door to the enemy, he'll end up in your refrigerator. <laughs> the Grinch who stole Christians. <laughs> Paul didn't yield even for an hour. Well, I'll yield for an hour and then, no. Don't go on the devil's part-time employment. Tell someone, don't go on the devil's part-time employment. Tell someone else because you'll end up going full-time. He said, I didn't yield for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue. Say continue. Paul and Titus did not yield because they would be living a lie and it would hinder them from helping others come into the truth. Do you know you cannot lead others into freedom when you're a slave? When we allow ourselves to be brought into bondage, we're unable to help anyone else in our life. We should not entertain anyone who undermines the word of God and the grace and faith message. Don't even yield to them. Don't even listen to them. Don't, waste, don't read their posts. And there's people out in the grace movement on the fringe that's teaching you that you don't need the word of God. You have your own relationship with God by revelation, and, and there's further revelation outside of the Word of God he wants, you to bring, he wants you to bring you into, and that's the baby things, and you need to put that away, and, and you're limited by the Word, and so you have your own spiritual relationship with Jesus in the Spirit. Well, you wouldn't even know there was a Jesus without the Word. And what do they use to convince you you don't need the Word? The Word. <laughs> Tell someone, stick with, stick with the Word. Stick with the gospel of grace and faith. That you're saved by grace, not your works. But it's also through faith. It's not automatic. It's not universal. Everybody's just saved. It's the gospel of grace and faith. Continue. What's the hallmark of a disciple? If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. Continue in freedom and resisting being brought into bondage. This shows us that we cannot rest upon our stand from the Lord from our years past. You can't stand on your stand for the Lord you made yesterday. You're, you're going to be challenged today if you're going to believe the Word of God and you're going to believe what the Word of God says about you and about morality and about His plan for His creation you're going to have to make a statement. Well, I'd rather not. I'm not going to. No, you just made one. You must make a stand. Either you're for the word or you're not. Tell someone I'm for the word. I'm for the word. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tell someone I don't know about you, but I'm serving the Lord. <laughs> 
Verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But those who seem to be something. In many people's eyes, there are people that seem to be more important than others. But not in God's eyes. Each person is valuable and important to him. Equally valuable and important to him. You know how you can detail your character? Your character is seen in how you treat people that cannot benefit you advancing in any way. How do you treat people that are not in a position to benefit you in advancing in any way? How do you treat them? How do you look upon them? How do you treat that waiter and waitress at the restaurant? How do you treat the janitor when you go and you, and you see a janitor cleaning up? How do you view them? How do you treat them? It's very, very important. It shows character and really how you, how you view human, human beings in general. In the kingdom of God, he will elevate certain people who seem to become something special. However, the purpose of their elevation is to minister and bless others who are equally as important and special to God as they are. Uh, I've written some books. People say, well, pastor, you wrote, will you sign as the author? And I do that. I'll sign the book because I'm the author of the book. But I've had people walk up to me and say, well, can I have your autograph? Because I'm on, you know, on TV and live Bible studies and people come in and, they, and, and, and they'll say, can I have your autograph? And I say, no. They say, well, why not? And I said, well, the only way I'm going to give you my autograph is if you give me yours. Because you're as equally as important as I am. And I'll have people go, Tilt, tilt, tilt. And so they'll sign their name and hand it to me, and I'll sign mine and give it to them. Galatians 6 3. If a man thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. In yourself, we're nothing. Well, I thought I'm the righteous of God. In him. Don't leave him out. Paul realized he was nothing in himself. That's 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But he also said, though I'm nothing. We are to no longer look according to any man, according to the outward flesh. Anything about them in the natural. All natural distinctions of the flesh should not cause a... a, The natural distinctions of the flesh should not cause us to treat people differently, more valuable or less valuable. You know, we look at people's position, their wealth, their fame, their race, their color. You know all that goes away in the new creation? So, a pastor, in the new creation, what race are you? The new creation. Well, what skin color are you? Shining. I glow. You saw me in the spirit, I'd be shining. The new, you, you too, if you're born again, you're shining. You're a new creation. God only sees three categories of humanity. He says, give no offense either to the, to the Jew, nor Greek, nor the church of God. And so you're either naturally born a Jew or a Gentile. If you're not a Jew, you're one of the nations. But you can get out of that category and become the church of God, the new creation. And if you're born again, you're the new creation. And all the distinctions of flesh, all the distinction in the natural goes away and we're equal in righteousness and in grace. Paul said, whatever they were, it didn't matter to me. This sounds highly arrogant. But Paul had a true understanding of man's status outside of Christ, which is a sinner, and man's status inside of Christ, which is righteousness by grace through faith, not anything done by that person. None of us are esteemed by God or accepted by our own merits, status, or achievements. We're accepted in the Beloved. It says it makes no difference to me who they were. It matters to many how important they look to others, but to Paul it didn't matter. I want you to say something. When Paul first got started, he looked to people and was impressed by people. It said that when he first got out of Bible school, he thought Peter was all that. He said, I want to go to Jerusalem and meet the rock. He didn't say he wanted to meet all the apostles. He says, no, I want to meet the top dog. I want the one with the keys. 
to, you know, the kingdom. I want, I want to talk to the rock because I, I want to know. I was impressed with Peter. But now he's standing 17 years later, seasoned in the grace of God, knows who he is and who he ain't. And he says, you know what? I could care less who he was in the natural because God shows no favoritism to human beings. God shows no personal favoritism to no man except for no. It's not really true. He, God shows favoritism to one man. Tell someone it's not you. I thought, is it me? No. Jesus Christ. God shows favoritism to Jesus. Except it, raise your hand if you accepted Jesus as your Savior. Okay? Then you entered into him and you share everything he has. He shares it with you. So he, he, he uh, has personal favoritism from the Father, and so in him you receive favor from him. That's why we need to pray in the name of Jesus, not the, in the name of Rick. I've tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> all people are special to God, and God desires to show favor to all through Christ. If you realize this, and tap into God's favor that belongs to Jesus, it will look like to those around you that you're God's favorite and that he's playing favorites with you because you get healed, you get prospered, you get blessed, and people are like, what's different about you? I'm God's favorite. Tell someone I look like God's favorite. We're all God's favorite in Christ Jesus. How is that? Well, it's a God deal. He's able to do that. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Say added nothing to me. Peter, James, and John did not add anything to Paul's message or ministry or to him personally. It's important to realize that no person, no matter how important they seem, can add anything to you as a person. They might be able to impart a blessing or some knowledge which came from God, by the way. But no one can add significance or value to you as a person. No one can. I don't care what Tom Cruise says. You complete me. No, there's only one person that completes you. His name is Jesus Christ. And you're complete in him. Verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter... Here we have a gospel to the uncircumcised and a gospel to the circumcised. Well, pastor, is that two different gospels? No, no, no. It's the same one gospel to two mission fields. The gospel to the Jews and the gospel to the Gentiles. We're going to find out Peter was committed with the gospel to, that's going to be in the mission field of the Jews and Paul was called to the mission field of the Gentiles. And so this is the basis for being ordained in the ministry. So I want you to see something. They saw that the gospel was committed to me. They saw. Say saw. This is the basis for being ordained in the ministry. Not only did he come up to argue the case that Gentiles could get saved, but God told Paul to go up and present your message and your ministry to the leadership in Jerusalem. Why? It was his ordination. 17 years after he was born again, Paul's going to bring him, God's going to bring Paul into ordination. What's ordination? It's not when people call you into the ministry. No, only God calls you into the ministry. It's not where people gives gifts and graces to you. No, God gives those to you and they recognize the grace on you. Recognize the gift that's been operating in you. Paul had already been in the ministry. But they saw that fruit of that ministry and then he was ordained into that ministry and they give him the right hand of fellowship. They saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, was committed. Say committed. Our ministry office and call are not really ours to use as we want. You know, so people say, well, Rick, I want you to do this in the church. And I said, no, not, I, no. Well, why not? I want you to do what I want. Well, I don't get to do what I want to do because it's not my church. This, is, this ministry has been committed. This is Jesus' church. People say, well, you have a wonderful church. No, Jesus has a wonderful church. Our ministry and office are not something that we, we take to ourselves. We're stewards over it, and it's been entrusted to you as the gospel for the circumcised, the Jews, was to Peter. 
I think it's interesting that God called Peter to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. If you're just thinking rationally, you would think, well, Paul would go to the Jews. He went to cemetery. I mean, seminary. He sent her to Gamaliel. He went to law school to learn the law. If anyone could argue and, and prove to those Jews about Jesus, it could be Paul. Peter was an ignorant fisherman. And but no, God, you know, and Paul, Paul said, Paul, you're called to the Gentiles. Yeah, okay, I know, but really, if he really knew what I could do. <laughs> and so he kept trying to prove that he, I'm the apostle, I'll prove it to you. And he would go to the, he'd go to the Jews first. And then he would end up in a rock concert. And he'd be on stage. Or he'd get beat up, he'd get kicked out of town. He says, fine, he'd shake his dust off. I'm going to the Gentiles. And God says, thank you. And then he'd go to the Gentiles and try to preach the law and about Abraham and Moses, and they, they shrugged their shirt. I don't, they, the Gentiles didn't know about any of those things. I don't know who is Moses. I don't know. And he said he was, he was left fear and trembling with one message, Christ and his power. Amen. And he looked over and said, well, God, if I'm not called to the Jews, who is? He looked over the fence and saw Peter over there. God says, him. Peter? The ignorant fisherman. He's the one that's going to these Jews. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. Peter would go to the Jews, and the Jews would ask him a hard law question. He says, I have no idea. I haven't been to cemetery. <laughs> but I do know that God's, Jesus is God's son. He lived a perfect life on earth. He raised from the dead. His power is here. Miracle signs and wonders will happen if you just believe. Amen. And miracles would flow through Peter. Right. Tell somebody God knows who, what he's doing. Verse 8, for he who worked effectively in Peter for apostleship to the circumcised, the Jews, also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. Say worked effectively. We get the word energy, energeo, energy. So you can tell where your ministry calling is, is by where is the most effective work done through you. We can do a lot of things. But we're, what we're most effective in grace to do is what God's called. In the area God's called you to and to who you called to, that's where God works most effectively through you. And so where, where, does, where, where is it most effective and where am I most graced to do? That's a key to where you're called to go. Successful ministry is not really something you do at all. It's something that God does in you and through you. Some ministers are fooled into thinking that they are graced for everywhere to do anything and to minister to everyone. It's not true. Said he worked in Peter, worked also in me. So again, to ascertain your ministry call, you can do it by prayer. So come to that. Ask God what he's called you to do. What are you passionate about? He'll put that in you. But then what are you good at? What are you graced to do? If you're graced to fly, you're probably a bird. If you're graced to swim, you're probably a fish. If you're graced for prophetic dance, you're a prophetic dancer. Verse 9. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, say pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, They didn't give them the grace. They perceived it. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Look at the word pillar. The word pillar means a column, a prop, or a support. The fivefold ministry gifts are called to lift up those in the church. In the Old Testament, in Solomon's temple, the temple was upheld by two pillars. And they had names. The first pillar that held up the temple in the Old Testament was called Jachin, J-A-C-H-I-N, pronounced Jachin. The other one was called Boaz. What do they mean? They have meanings. Jachin means established. Boaz means truth. Together it means to be established in the truth. So if you're going to be a pillar in the, in the church, you need to be established in the truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the truth 
of how to walk in faith to bring forth fruit for all to see and to partake of. They perceived, say perceived, the grace that's been given to me. Ordination is where others perceive the grace that's already been given to you and is operating in you. And this grace that was given, look at the word grace. It's not unmerited favor, vertical grace. This is horizontal, empowering grace. It's the empowerment to do what God's called you to do. They could perceive it. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. What's that mean? The right hand was the place of honor, favor, and fellowship. And when they gave them the right hand, it was into the ministry. They already were Christians, but they were saying, you are joining into this apostolic ministry call. And this was basically saying, we recognize you in ministry. If you wanted to show someone special favor, honor, and they were in covenant fellowship with you, you set them at your right hand. You know when we shake hands, we shake it, really that's a sign of acceptance and friendship. You know when you raised, when Jesus raised from the dead, when you got saved, he put you at his right hand. He gave you the right hand of fellowship. That means he shows you his favor, honor, and covenant fellowship when he sat you at his own right hand. Tell someone, you've had the right hand of fellowship. Have you ever had the left foot of fellowship? Or you got kicked out of a church? Who did Paul bring down to Jerusalem with him? He brought Barnabas and Titus. Notice it says, they gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, but they left Titus out. The Gentile, they, they, they didn't give him the right hand of fellowship. Racism in the early church. And I'll prove to you in the early church, because this was just a few years after Jesus rose from the dead. They're, they're getting, they're, this is tilt, tilt, tilt of Jew-Gentile thing. And the early church did not have it fully understanding. Paul did. He had a Pauline revelation. Even James in the early church, before he got a revelation of grace and wrote the book of James, before that, he and his mindset and those in the leadership in the Jerusalem mindset, there was two tiers. There was Jews and Gentiles were subclass. Well, pastor, how can you prove that? Let's use scripture. Look at, books, look at Acts chapter 21, look at verse 17. This is later on when Paul will come to Jerusalem again and God will say, don't go, don't go, don't go, Paul, don't go. Paul says, I'm going. I'm going to minister to Jews. When he gets there, he's going to talk to James in the leadership of the church. James, uh, Acts 21, look at verse 17. And when we, Paul and his team, had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they all glorified God. Hallelujah! Praise God, Paul! But after they clapped him on the back, they got down to business because they wanted to say something to Paul. You see, brother, you almost how they said it. You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children nor walk according to the custom. Again, circumcision is the main thing. Verse 22, what then? The assembly must certainly meet, and they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow, that's a Nazarite vow, to where you shave your head and then you have to sacrifice animals in the temple. Take them and be purified with them and pay for their expenses. Pay for their sacrifices, which all represent Jesus. Every animal represented Jesus. He says, take animals and pay for their expenses and your own. And uh, uh, take with them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and they, that all may know that those things which they were informed concerning you is nothing, but you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. Look at the next verse. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, 
We've written, decided that they should observe no such thing. What was he saying is Jews are still under the law, but these Gentiles were letting them in, kind of a subgroup. They don't have to keep the law. It's like, Christ, it's like Judaism light. Yeah, they don't have to be circumcised, but they're subclass. Yeah, they're saved, but they're not spiritual. But can we do the same thing and look down at other people because they're not as spiritual as we are? I, I, saw, I saw them at the movies. Well, what were you doing at the movies? Well, well I just was walking by. I, I was driving by and saw them. Because they don't have your, span, your, your level of maturity. Verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Paul always had a heart for the poor. Matter of fact, Acts 11, Barnabas and Paul, prior to being on their first missionary journey together, they went down and gave an offering and helped the poor people in Jerusalem. That's before he even entered into the ministry. He had a heart for the poor before he got into the ministry. Now they says, no, you know, go and preach to the Gentiles, but you know what? Remember the poor. Don't forget the poor. I think that's important for us to realize that that's on the heart of God is the poor. We see them every day. We drive by almost every corner. You see they're begging, but you know what? If the Lord tells you to give, give, but it's not wise unless the Lord tells you to because often they use it for the alcohol, drugs, and it's not helping them. But you know what? The Lord's put on Joanna and I heart to personally give to the Springs Rescue Mission every month. And so, yeah, we give to teachers, we give to gospel, to evangelism, but don't forget the poor. And so we give to the poor because they're set up to help them get off the situation, get onto their feet, get into a job. And so, again, be for the gospel, but don't forget the poor. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. I thank you, Father, that you have set us free to be your sons and daughters. And, Lord, I pray for us in this day that we would have strength not to force and let, let unbelievers pressure us into adopting stances that are not scriptural. It's not the word of God. And one day we're going to stand before one person, you. We're not going to stand before the, the world. We're not going to stand in front of the people out telling us what we ought to believe. And we're going to stand before you, Lord Jesus, one day, and you're going to ask, did you stay faithful to my word? Did you stay faithful to me and my word? And he will enable, if you make the decision, he'll give you the power and the grace. And he'll give you the answer to speak when people come against you. But today, you'll need to make a decision. Will I stand in liberty? Will I stand in the word of God? Will I bow into slavery? And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 